The following recording was produced by Christ Redeemer Church of Hanover, New Hampshire. You may find more information on the church and its various resources on the web at www.christredeemerchurch.org. Good morning. I'm reading Psalm 5. It is a psalm of David. Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groaning. Give attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God, for to you do I pray. O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell in you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and the deceitful man. But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. I will bow down before toward your holy temple in the fear of you. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before me. For there is no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. Make them bear their guilt, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. Because of the abundance of their transgressions, cast them out, for they have rebelled against you. But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy and spread your protection over them, that those who love your name may exult in you. For you bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover him with favor as with a shield. This ends the reading of God's word. Well, good morning. Uh, will you join me in a word of prayer? Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this day. We thank you for uh, the rain that has come to water and give life to our land. We thank you for um, this joyous day that we have to celebrate um, the physical fathers that we have in our lives. And we thank you for um, their good example that, that shows us how you are a good father to us. We pray, Lord, that as we uh, continue to worship by listening uh, to the instruction that we have in your word, Lord, would you give us a, a greater sense of your goodness, your faithfulness, your steadfast love to us, Lord, and would uh, that understanding be worked out in the obedience and the praise of our lives. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, let me start by first saying Happy Father's Day to all the fathers in the room. Um, I hope that uh, your kids bought you a brand new car or a new house. Uh, I know for, for us, we used to buy my dad socks and t-shirts. And, and that's all he said he wanted. Uh, and as I grow older, I begin to understand, yeah, there's something nice about it, like a good new pair of socks or a good t new t-shirt. So I guess he, he, he wasn't really lying to us. I, I am grateful for my own father. I, I think I have one of the best uh, dads that you could possibly have. He... Uh, I have two sisters, and, and he uh, raised us uh, not just to love the Lord, but also to love one another and love God's people. Um, he was very involved in our lives. I, I, I was a, an athlete my whole life, and my dad would come watch practices, uh, which now, knowing him, he was a full-time professional. He also worked 
at our church and for him to just take time and come watch us run around like in middle school football practice was, I know, a sacrifice for him. And so as I think about him and his example, I'm, I'm extremely grateful for him. Uh, but part of my dad's story is that wasn't true for him. Uh, his father was not in his life. And so he, uh, in real time, had to sort of uh, create that kind of environment for his kids without much of a blueprint in his own life. And so if that's not your story, if your story is not like mine and you, you uh, maybe had an absent father or, or didn't grow up with a great example of a father, so uh, did my dad. And, and I think one of the only things that, that keeps all of us, whether we have good fathers or not, is that we have a heavenly father who is good and gives us a good example. And I know that was true for him. And that's the reason he was able to be such a great father uh, to his kids. And so I'm, I'm just grateful to be able to open scripture and, and look at our heavenly father today. So let me again, just happy Father's Day to all the fathers in the room. And I hope it's a, a really good day. Uh, before us, we, we have Psalm 5, and I, I want to start uh, uh, this sermon today by talking about the chameleon effect. I don't know if you guys know anything about the chameleon effect. You probably do, and, and chances are that it's probably in you more than, more than you know. The, the chameleon effect is this tendency that we have to mimic the expressions, the postures, the, and the actions of the people that we're interacting with. And this, this tendency is stronger in some than others. And if you are a person who, who's very empathetic, like that's just something that's, that's inside of you, you, you probably do this more than most. Uh, but researchers have shown that we all do this to some effect. We all take part in this chameleon effect. And it looks like this. When, when we're having a conversation with someone and they start to tap their foot, if we pay attention long enough, we'll start to see that we're, we're probably tapping our foot too. If you're sitting across from someone and they, they begin to cross their arms and, and, and talk to you with their arms folded, oftentimes you'll look up or you'll look down and see somehow your arms became folded too. If they shift in a certain way, maybe they lean back in their chair, maybe they lean forward, all of a sudden you guys are too close for comfort because you guys are just mimicking one another. Some people even uh, have it so strongly in them that they begin to mimic accents. And so I know that there's, uh, you know, the New England people are, are uh, up here, people with no accents. But there's some of you who might travel to the great state of Oklahoma, where I'm from, and you'll walk around Tulsa long enough and you'll start to find, why am I saying y'all? And why, why, am I, my, why do I have this sort of southern draw? That's the chameleon effect. This happens with people who we're familiar with, and it also happens when we're around complete strangers, too. We all, we all have this tendency to mimic the people around us in ways that we, we don't even notice. And there's something that, that, that about this chameleon effect that, that translates to our entire lives, doesn't it? I mean, we see this actually so clearly in children. Uh, one of the things that's just true is that technology is the most advanced it has ever been up until this point. You know, I remember as a kid, all it meant to use, uh, to be able to use a phone is that you would pick up this device, you would put it to your ear, and you would just start punching numbers, right? I remember having a home phone. I still remember my home phone telephone number from, from Tulsa, Oklahoma, but nobody has really landlines anymore. But what does it take to use a phone now? Like if I gave you my iPhone, and especially Androids, which are way too complicated for no reason, now you have to remember a code. You have to know how to put that code in. In Androids, you kind of have to draw some kind of lines. Then you have to open an app, put, punch these buttons in, or maybe scroll up and find someone's name, hit their phone number, don't hit FaceTime, hit call, and then that's going to get you to this other person. I mean, technology is so advanced. You have to swipe, type in, all these things. But kids as young as three years old can take your iPhone, can take your Android, and know exactly 
how to call people you don't ever want them to call, right? <laughs> and how is, they, they know how to talk to Siri. They know how to say, hey, Siri, how's the weather today? Or, hey, Siri might actually do it on my watch. So. <laughs> but they, they know how to hack into all of your technology. And how? It's not because when you send them to daycare or to their grandparents' house, they take these technology classes. But they, they learn just by mimicking. They learn by watching you punch in your passcode. They learn by watching you scroll up and down your phone. They learn by watching you call people. That's, that's a big part of how knowledge gets passed down. Not often through learning and sitting down and, and, and imbibing information, but through imitation. And many of the behaviors that we see in ourselves, we, we didn't sit down and think through. We picked them up from somewhere. And I, and I think this carries through into our adult life as well. I mean, how often do we start to realize how much we're like our parents or the people who raised us? I mean, speaking of Father's Day, I feel like I'm turning into a photocopy of my dad. And in, in, in the good and in the ways that I was frustrated with him growing up, I mean, even in, in little ways, like the ways that I eat chips, okay? My dad is a big tortilla chip lover. And every Sunday, he would sit down with a root beer and a big bowl of chips, and, and he would nibble on them. Like a, like, a, like a squirrel. He would just take little bites and little bites and little bites. He would savor every chip. And I'm like, dude, what are you doing? Well, I, I have learned about myself. The other day, I was eating a chip, and I was like, I just took 25 bites out of this chip for no reason. Why? Not because I sat down and thought, this is how I want to eat chips. This is just turning into a photocopy of my dad, the way that I laugh. You know, my dad... Uh, I, me and him go back and forth, and I so love his humor. He's actually a very reserved person. Like, if you were to meet him for the first time, uh, he would be very reserved and, and, and not closed off or cold, but just an introverted in a kind of way. But if you get to know him really well, you, you know him, and you know the sound of his laugh. His laugh travels. And me, you know, I like to be a man of mystery, you know, reserved, things of that nature. But one of the things that especially my close friends know about me is if you make me laugh, It'll kind of be loud and loud in a way that's like, okay, let's tone it back. Why? A photocopy of my dad also had his hoarding tendency. Uh, and not just junk. Well, I guess it comes off as junk, but we don't see it as junk, right? My dad now, my, my parents were cleaning out uh, his desk this weekend. And my dad has my kindergarten uh, uh, test scores in his desk. He also has a journal entry that I was supposed to write for some fifth grade class in his class. It was a letter uh, from Frankenstein to Frankenstein's creator. Now again, why in the world did this man keep this weird, uh, uh, obscure journal entry? Because there's just something about it that was like, this is my kid, this is my son, and I want to keep all the things that he has. Well, same is true for me. If your kids uh, today were to make me something in children's church and give it to me, and it, and it was just sort of like a scribble on a page, I would take it and I would keep it and I would hoard it. Actually, if you look at my desk right now, I cannot organize it because of so much what you might see as junk. But for me, it's just stories of all the things that people have given me or made for me. Why? Because, again, turning into a photocopy of my father. But not just in those ways, the ways that I process emotions or interact with strangers. I mean, so much of our life is learning, and not learning through knowledge or head knowledge, but learning through imitation. And, and I think that process in and of itself isn't bad, but what happens when we start to realize that the behaviors that we've picked up and learned aren't healthy? What happens when we realize we've started to mimic others, not just good tendencies or, or healthy tendencies, but their sinful tendencies as well? 
Well, I think that's the context that we find ourselves in here in this psalm. That's the context that David finds himself in. He's facing some kind of undeserved persecution, and what he's finding is that he's tempted to respond in ways that replicate his persecutor's behavior. He's feeling unjustly targeted, so he's tempted to respond with some injustice of his own. And in this moment, he stops and he prays this simple but powerful prayer in verse 8. He says, lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before me. See, I think what we see in the psalm is that, is that sin tempts us to respond to our persecution in ways that mimic our enemies and bring condemnation. But God provides a way of righteousness for all those who take refuge in him. And so I want to talk about three things as we, as we break open the psalm this morning. I want to talk about our daily dilemma, the way of righteousness, and the path of prayer. Our daily dilemma, the way of righteousness, and the path of prayer. Let's talk about our daily dilemma. There's a dilemma that David finds himself in, and we see it even in the structure of the psalm. His dilemma begins by being sandwiched between two polar opposite things. On one side, he has a righteous God. And what that means for David as he initially reflects on it is the description that we get in verses 4 through 6. So you'll see that in, in your bulletin printed. What does God's righteousness mean? God is, not, God is a God who does not delight in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with him. The boastful shall not stand before his eyes. He hates all evildoers. He destroys those who speak lies and abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. See, David's initial understanding is that God's righteousness is reflected in his relationship with sin. And God's relationship with sin, as David paints it, is, is an impartial and categorical hatred of it. I mean, listen to the, and, and see the intensity of the words that David uses. He uses words like hate and abhors, destroys, and, and there's no delight in wickedness. And there's also no caveats or loopholes as, as he gives us the, their, this description. It doesn't matter the status or the wealth or the identity of the evil-doing, lying, bloodthirsty, and deceitful man. God's righteousness is seen in his impartial and categorical hatred of sin. That's who David has on one side in verses 4 through 6. On the other side, David has his enemies. And in one sense, his enemies are the embodiment of everything that God is against. So look in verses 9 through 10. If God destroys those who speak lies... David's enemies have no truth in their mouths. If, if God abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man, David's enemies in most self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave and they flatter with their tongue. If God does not delight in wickedness, David's enemies have an abundance of transgressions. I mean, these are people who are the polar opposite of God and they're opposing David too. So on one side, David has a righteous God who hates sin. On the other side, David has his enemies who are steeped in sin. And David, in verses 7 through 8, is sandwiched right in the middle. And so, so what's the dilemma? Well, the, the dilemma for David is that he, as he interacts with his enemies, he doesn't know the right thing to do. He can see the pieces of the puzzle so clearly. He can see God's righteousness displayed in his hatred of sin. And he can see the wickedness of his enemies, but he can't put the pieces of this puzzle together in a way that gives him the right way forward. And so in verses 7 and 8, he takes time to enter God's house, bow down and pray this prayer. Again, let me get at the center of the psalm. He says, lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight 
before me. See, I think the, the real problem when we face opposition or, or persecution is not understanding God's boundaries, and it's not really even understanding our enemies. The, the problem with opposition and persecution is that it exposes the blindness of our own hearts. You know, one of my favorite movies growing up as, as a kid was A Bug's Life. Has anybody ever seen A Bug's Life? came out in 1998. It's a great movie. If you haven't watched it, I suggest you go see it. And, and, the, and the opening scenes is, is one of my favorite. It, it's the scene of the ants of the colony. They're going out, and they're, they're, they're chopping grain. They're gathering fruits. They're, they're harvesting these vegetables, and they're coming back to the colony in a single-file line. And in the midst of them walking back with these, these grains and fruits and vegetables over their heads, there's a leaf that falls right into the path that they're walking down. Now, this isn't a narrow path that they're squeezed into. It's a wide-open path straight back to the colony. And as that leaf falls right onto the path, the ant that it falls in front of is holding a grain above his head. He looks down at the leaf and he screams, I'm lost. Where's the path? The ants behind him all get stacked up because they're in this single file line. And some, some ant right behind him says, we'll be stuck here forever. And, I, and as I went back in my you know, uh, devoted sermon prep and watched A Bug's Life, uh, in my mind, as I was thinking about the scene, the leaf that fell was actually a pretty big leaf. But if you go back and watch the movie, it's, it's not a big leaf at all. It's, it's a minor inconvenience. But what should have been a minor inconvenience, uh, it should have been a minor inconvenience, but because the ants were accustomed to walking one particular line, only looking at one another, they thought that they were going to die holding grain above their heads because this leaf was in their path. And I think that's, that's such an appropriate picture of the long-term effects of sin. See, in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 through 18, Paul, he's, he's encouraging the Ephesians church to grow in their faith by putting away the, the habits of their old life and living into the new life that they have in Christ. And as he talks about the former life or the old self, he paints this picture of sin. And, and as he paints the picture, he says, sin produces futility, which means uselessness and ignorance in our minds, and it produces a darkness or hardness in our hearts. And, and that tracks with the picture of sin that we get throughout the rest of the Bible as well. I mean, every time we see sin or, or pictures of sin, we see that sin is not instructive, it's destructive. It's not creative, it's unimaginative. It can't take into account the big picture. It reduces the scope of our worldview to ourselves. It produces a futility and ignorance in our minds, and a darkness and a hardness in our hearts. And, and we don't always feel that effect of sin, but it only takes one leaf of opposition, one moment of persecution, or even temptation, one, one moment of an obstacle coming into our lives that we didn't account for to expose us and to show us how blind we really are. I mean, I think that's at least what I'm learning about, about myself I feel like each day that I live, or, or at least each week that I live, there's a new leaf that, that exposes me. And, and oftentimes, these, these leaves, these moments of opposition aren't usually from a physical enemy. I don't, I don't know how many of those I have besides my two sisters, you know? <laughs> That's not true. They're not my enemies. <laughs> but oftentimes, it's, it's usually from my spiritual enemy, the devil. I mean, I mean even as a, as a person who's been a Christian for 20 years and in full-time ministry for six years, I, I'm often still uh, wowed at how just little moments of temptation can turn into a, a day-long or a week-long battle 
And oftentimes, I, I don't usually turn to scripture uh, right away, maybe as often as I should. Sometimes I don't reach out for help as often as I should. Sometimes I feel like those ants stuck in front of the leaf, not being able to do anything, thinking I'll be stuck here forever. Sometimes it's not temptation. Sometimes it's shame as the enemy plays this highlight reel of my failures. And sometimes the, the thoughts and the, and the shame that comes with that can steal whole days and weeks. Some of you, we all have that same spiritual enemy, but some of you also have physical enemies who remind you of your failures or conspire against you. And you know the stress and the anxiety and the anger and the time that that steals. You know how easy it is to feel stuck in that place, holding all those emotions, feeling like it won't get better. Even opposition from people who, who love us, like our spouses or our parents or our children. How often do, do conflicts amongst one another throw our entire moods and days off? You, you know, our daily dilemma is that we constantly find ourselves sandwiched between a right, righteous God and a sinful enemy with hearts and minds that cannot naturally see the right way forward. And so what do we do when we find ourselves in those moments? Well, let's talk about the way of righteousness. I think our, our native intuition, or at least my native intuition, our human instinct is to try to figure things out ourselves. And that, and that can look like a number of things. I mean, this, the most simple thing to do when we face opposition or persecution is to quit, is, is to just lie down and wait until it passes. It's to disengage or to check out, to distance ourselves from the situation. If, if need be, we can, we can give in and comply and start to live according to the truth of whoever is opposing us. Another option, which is more of my favorite, is when they go low, you go lower, right? To, to escalate the situation, to encourage confrontation, but, it's, but not in direct ways because we're sophisticated people, right? In roundabout ways. Maybe we'll complain about the situation to everyone. Maybe we'll gossip about our opposition. We'll, we'll prove ourselves right or them wrong in a very public yet indirect way. If we're going to pray and bring it to prayer, we'll, we'll pray on, the, on our opposition's downfall and then look for ways to fulfill our own prayer request. Or, third way, we can try to do what we or others have deemed is right. And, and by God's common grace, this isn't always uh, the worst path. I mean, there are people who, who will never acknowledge God, who respond with grace and patience and kindness and love, even in the midst of their persecution. But back to our introduction, or maybe even back to A Bug's Life, what happens when the people that we look to or learn from find the leaf in their life that they can't get around? I mean, I think about a, a person like Ravi Zacharias, who was, who was a Christian leader, who had this, this leaf of temptation that he could just not get around. He, he quit fighting, in a way. And not only was his fall great, it left a lot of people feeling stuck because they realized that they were following him as a substitute for following Jesus. I mean, there are options that our native intuitions and our human instincts give us. And if there's anyone who knows what it means to follow those, it's this guy writing this psalm. It's David. I mean, David spanned the whole range of, of doing things when he felt himself squeezed between a righteous God and a sinful enemy. He, he knows what it's like to quit, to quit as he fled his son, Absalom, when, when his son tried to take over the throne. He definitely knows what it's like to, to escalate situations. When they go low, he goes lower, which is part of the reason he wasn't allowed to build a temple. God said, you've got too much blood on your hand, buddy. Your son's going to build the temple. He knows what it means to follow what he 
what he or the world thinks is right in his own eyes, which is, which is at the, the foundation of the story of him and Bathsheba. I mean, he knows spanning the range, and so he knows the emptiness of it. And so why is he praying this prayer now, asking the Lord to lead him and his righteousness? Well, again, remember who David is sandwiched in between. He is sandwiched between a righteous God, again, and a sinful enemy. And if he replicates the patterns of the world, he's at risk on both sides. First, he risks putting himself at odds with God. And yes, this is a God who has chosen David, who has called David to be king, who has shown David a lot of favor over his life. But remember that God is a God whose righteousness shows no partiality. The same reason that we can trust in God's righteousness as a firm foundation is the same reason that we don't want to find ourselves on the wrong side of it. Galatians chapter 6, verse 7 says this, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. You know, one of the most tragic stories for me as I read through the Bible is actually the story of Moses in the wilderness. And if you know anything about the story of Moses, Moses was an awesome guy who came a long way. I mean, Moses' life started off by being put in a basket and floated down the Nile River because uh, the Pharaoh was out to kill uh, Moses. Uh, God saves him. He gets raised by Pharaoh's daughter in Pharaoh's house, also nursed and nurtured by his own Hebrew mother. Uh, Moses was given chance after chance. Uh, he got, went into the wilderness initially because he, he killed a man trying to free the people initially. He comes back. God uses him to, to deliver the people through plagues, opens the Red Sea, walks through it, is leaving the people in the wilderness. In a moment of frustration, God tells Moses to speak to a rock. Moses strikes a rock out of frustration. And that's the moment that God says, hey, Moses, I know you've done all these things and I've used you for these great purposes, but because you didn't regard me as holy, you don't get to go into the promised land. I mean, God's righteousness is impartial even to a guy like Moses, to a guy like David, and also to us. And so if David follows his native intuitions, he, he risks putting himself at odds with that impartial, righteous God. And, and secondly, not only does he risk putting himself at odds with God, he risks falling into the same empty tactics and habits that are being used against him. And, and this can sometimes be harder for us to see, which is why it can be so tempting to choose to escalate or imitate when we face opposition. But I think maybe kids might know this best. And, and not New London kids, because you guys are way better than me when I was growing up. You know, you guys are obedient, righteous kids, and I appreciate that about you. But when I was a kid, and I was interacting with my sisters, we would argue a lot of times, and sometimes we would get into physical altercations. And when my sisters would hit me, my first instinct would not be to get on my knees and pray to the Lord. <laughs> my first instinct was to immediately strike back. And as they cried, and my parents intervened, my parents would ask puzzling questions like this. Why did you hit your sister? And that was a puzzling question to me because to me, in the moment, why did I hit, why did I hit my sisters? I, I was defending myself. I was defending my honor. I was de even developing my sister's character because, you know, don't bite <laughs> off more than you can chew, right? And somebody's got to teach them that lesson. But at the end of the day, I was just replicating the same empty tactics and habits that were being used against me. And where did it get me? In trouble, right? And that's a, that may be a silly example, but again, sin is not instructive, it's destructive. It's not creative, it's unimaginative. It cannot redeem, it can only corrupt. 
It can't take into account the big picture. It reduces the scope of our worldview to ourselves. And so when we respond to sin against us with sin of our own, we're only replicating the destructive, unimaginative, corrupt, and short-sighted acts of the world. See, to follow our native intuitions and our human instincts when we face opposition is dangerous. We either risk putting ourselves at odds with a righteous God or mimicking an empty and sinful enemy. I think what David shows us in this psalm is that if, is, is if he's going to find a right way forward, and if we're going to find a right way forward, God is going to have to lead us. You know, going back to the Bugs Life movie, the, the ants are all standing there stuck as they're looking at this leaf. And at that moment, an older ant runs in and he says, don't worry, don't worry. We're going to go around the leaf. Such a novel idea for these ants that are all standing in line. And they look at him at first and they say, we can't do that. We can't go around the leaf. And what the, ant, what the older ant starts doing is he starts walking backwards. And he says, look, look into my eyes. We're going to go around the leaf. And as the ants focus on this older ant, as he leads them around the, the leaf, they're, he's just having conversation, leading them. And all of a sudden, the, the, the first ant looks down and he goes, I'm found. We've, I found the path. We're on the right path again. And that's exactly what David is asking for God to do for him. He says, lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness, not my own, and make your way straight before me. Take that righteous standard that you have for me in this situation and bring it to me in an embodied way so that I can follow you as you lead me through. You know, I think this prayer that David prays teaches us something very beautiful about God's righteousness. And that's that God's righteousness is personal. You know, God's righteousness isn't just a standard by which God measures us and we measure ourselves. It's not the checklist that we bring along as we walk through life to make sure we're doing things right. It's not something we go looking for in a book and aspire to live up to one day. No, God's righteousness is found in relationship with him. God's righteousness comes to us as we bring him along with us, or better yet, as we allow ourselves to walk alongside him. God's righteousness is so much more than right standing before him as a status. And, and a lot of times we talk about being declared righteous, and, and that's true. But how are we made or declared righteous? It's by entering into relationship with him. It's by putting our faith and our trust in God and allowing him to become Lord over our life. And I think we see the personal nature of God's righteousness so clearly in Jesus. Because, I mean, who is Jesus? Jesus is the embodiment of God's righteousness. He is God's righteous standard come to a sinful people. And he, though he was the one who didn't delight in wickedness, though he was the one who could have been the destroyer of those who speak lies and the, the hater of the evildoers and the one who abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man, we see him giving his life away to those very kinds of people. We see him enduring hatred. We see him being pushed away. We see his life being destroyed on the cross. And it's not because Jesus hated sin any less but because he hated sin and loved us so much that he was willing to come down and destroy the power of sin in our lives, to come back and to give us sight. See, God is not looking to condemn with his righteousness. He's looking to give it away to us because he knows we need it. He desires to bring us instruction and creativity, 
redemption and to give us a, a worldview big enough that can hold on to him long enough to bring, him, bring us around any leaf of opposition that we face in our lives. And again, that wasn't just through coming and in, in saying and giving us words. Even back to our, our introduction, how do we learn most? How do we learn best? It's through imitation. And that's how we learn and grow in God's righteousness is as we walk with him. It's as we see him take a step, we take a step. As we see him pause, we pause. As we see him love his enemies, we love our enemies. As we see him pray, we pray. It's through the imitation in the Lordship of Jesus Christ. See, when we find ourselves sandwiched between a righteous God and a sinful enemy with hearts and minds that cannot naturally see the way forward, we have a God who provides a way of righteousness. He provides it in himself. So as we come to our last point, how do we make sure that we're on that way? Now, there's a lot of things uh, we could we could say to this end, but but I want to talk about prayer. My, my last point is the path of prayer, because I think prayer sets us on that path. I don't know your situation well enough to, to give you step-by-step step instruction. I do know that it is found in Christ, and how we come to Christ is through a posture of humility and through prayer. Again, first it starts with humility, and, and look in verse 7. Uh, uh, David comes to the Lord with this posture of humility. He says, But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. I will bow down toward your holy temple in the fear of you. David, even as king, who technically is allowed to do uh, uh, really whatever he wants to do as an earthly king, he is acknowledging his weakness in that he doesn't know the righteous thing to do. And David understands that it's not through his own merit that he's coming before the Lord, but it's on the basis of God's love for him. And that's really the first way that we, we fight our native intuition to forge our own way forward, is to come before God in humility, acknowledging our need for him. But notice that the spirit of humility leads David to prayer, to lifting up his voice. And really that's what this whole psalm is. It's a prayer. Even if you look at verses 1 through 3, David talks about, uh, Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groaning. Give attention to the sound of my cry. He is praying out to the Lord. And he ends by saying, But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Verse 11. Let them ever sing for joy. He is praying not just for himself now, but for other people. David is, is modeling uh, how we walk the way of righteousness through the path of prayer. And, and why, why prayer? What's happening in prayer? Well, so, there's so many things we could say about this, but I think as we, as we consider the situation that David is in, the situations we find ourselves in, see, persecution and opposition has a way of, 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 of minimizing our worldview, of helping us to focus only on the moment and only on our opposition. But what prayer does is it opens up our hearts and our minds back to the greatness and the majesty of who God is. It bumps our perspective back out to God. It, it focuses our, uh, our focus gets fixed on him in prayer and it puts us in a different place. Prayer also gives us a, a place and an outlet for our desperation. I think some of the times, especially when we face persecution, those things, those things produce a lot of emotion in us, whether it be anger, sadness, whether it be confusion, and oftentimes, uh, if we're not going to replicate by taking those emotions and, and taking them out on our oppositions, a lot of times we don't have a place for them. 
And the world will just say, well, yeah, just sort of eat those emotions, bottle those things up. But the Lord invites us to take those things to him and gives us an outlet for that desperation. And ultimately gives us a resting place for our fears, for our anxieties in his kingship and in his lordship. You know, one of the encouraging things that I was reflecting on as I thought about this psalm is that Jesus would have known and prayed this psalm as he walked the earth. I mean, Jesus was, again, a man who faced a lot of earthly opposition and knew the righteous standards of his father way better than we ever, ever could, ever will. And, and what does scripture tell us that Jesus is doing as he's walking town to town, not just healing and doing miracles, but also facing opposition? He's going to solitary places and he's praying. He's, he, the Bible says that he grows and he learns obedience and he does that for our sake so that he might be obedient and ultimately give his life for us. See, this is the life that, that God invites us to, not just the way of righteousness being in, in relationship with him, but even the path to righteousness as well, being in relationship with him. So if you don't know Jesus this morning, if, if you find yourself in, in that kind of a sticky spot sandwiched between those two things and you're looking for a way forward, my invitation to you, whether you know Christ or not, is to pray the prayer that David prayed, to lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies and to make your way straight before me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that uh, in it we find the invitation of life. Lord, even as, as um, David paints this picture of, of his enemies tempting him to sin as he's being opposed, Lord, we thank you that um, he hears and we hear your invitation to find life and instruction in you. Lord, I pray for all those who, who are experiencing real opposition, especially from, from physical opponents uh, right now, Lord. I pray that the anxiety and the fear and the anger and the stress that, that comes from those situations, Lord, that they would be able to bring those things and place them in you. But we know that our opposition isn't just physical, it's also spiritual, Lord. The enemy would love to come and to, to, to lead us in unrighteousness as we uh, fight against or, or quit in our fight against sin, Lord. But we thank you that you provide a path for us as you lead us in your righteousness. I pray, Lord, that you would make us a people who would look to prayer, as a, a regular habit to, um, to, to learn your righteousness and to learn what it means to walk in you, Lord. I pray, Lord, that you would meet us in those times of prayer and that we really would be a people who take refuge in you. We ask this in Jesus' name.